Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. And so we've got a pretty exciting day ahead, uh, lecture ahead. And we've already talked about reincarnation before. We did it in two parts. We discussed some cases um, and reasoned based on the data of those cases what the truth might be regarding reincarnation. So today, our lecture is called Reincarnation Revisited um, since we're coming back to the topic. And it's important that we come back to the topic having just discussed death last week. So some of you were here for the Scorpio full moon uh, and the Pluto retrograde, which happened last week on Monday. Uh, and the entirety of that lecture was devoted to decoding what death is, what is it that dies, and whether or not that has anything to do with you. So the goal of last week's lecture was to move beyond death to move at least beyond the fear of death, or at least beyond the attribution between the end of the body with the end of you. So last week, we explored some core teachings from Hindu non-duality, Advaita Vedanta, some core teachings from yoga, Sankhya, and Buddhism to explore what happens when the body dies. And hopefully by now, you're starting to see that the death of the body doesn't mean the death of you. And last week, we hinted at reincarnation. Uh, and some people have been asking throughout the week. And I thought, okay, let's take it up again. Let's look at reincarnation a second time. In order, though, to have this discussion, a few disclaimers. The first, I intend to have the discussion about reincarnation as scientifically as possible. So it, it will help us to, to define what we mean by that. Now, I propose in this lecture that science or the process of doing science is really about an inquiry into causes, cause and effect. So what constitutes science is tracing effects back to their causes. And the more precise we can be with regards to causes and what effects they produce, that's quality science. You can imagine back in the day, people are looking, peering out of their caves at a world that seemed very hostile and incomprehensible. They couldn't understand why it was that fire seemed to show up in certain places and not others. Why it was that lightning appeared in the sky to illuminate everything in a brief, terrifying flash of eldritch white light. You know, the world seemed rather frightening. And as the human, I suppose, inquiry into causes developed, we cultivated more um, understanding. What is it to be lightning? How do we create fire? Um, and from these inquiries into causes, we got some technologies. You know, we learned how to start fire on our own, and we learned how to harness the lightning in the sky for our own lamps and, and what have you. But all of that comes from understanding causes. If this, then that. And the more precise that we can identify a cause, um, the, I suppose, more successful our science will be. Secondly, let's clarify that science is not necessarily a body of knowledge. So it's, it's not um, an authority. Rather, it's a method. It's a method meant for each individual uh, in their own search for truth. And that method, at its best, is your own investigation into phenomena and your own reasoning based on the data that is experientially available to you. So that's one of the uh, advantages of science in, in that it takes 
for its base data experience, something that you can verify for yourself through your senses, and you reason based off of that. More importantly, science is something that should be uh, repeatable, testable, observable, verifiable. So the scientific process must have certain yardsticks um, that can be repeated by other people. So essentially, it's find out for yourself. And if you do this experiment, you should get similar results. And it's democratic in that way. Anybody anywhere can try the experiment and they should get similar results. And if they aren't getting those results, they have to see if they're doing the experiment correctly. The guarantee at least is that if you do the experiment correctly, you'll get certain results. And those are repeatable, testable, and observable. Yoga, Advaita Vedanta, and Buddhism very radically subscribes to this philosophy. The Buddha famously, one of his last few statements was, be a lamp unto thyself. Essentially, find out for yourself. Don't take my word for anything. Don't take anybody's word for anything. Do the method. And if you do it correctly, you will see for yourself the truth of what I'm talking about. And most importantly, he didn't define that truth uh, such that it would become a concept. He was very careful to stay away from dogma or concepts, always emphasizing a practical approach, a methodology, you know. Yoga is much the same way. It rejects the faith-based systems that preceded it and said, we can do better than just give you a bunch of beliefs and concepts. We can give you a method. And through practicing that method, you will eventually come to see for yourself the truth of its claims, that you were never the mind, never the body. You were the immortal spirit. Uh, but don't take our word for it. You know. Ultimately, though, you still do need to have some faith. Not faith in the conclusions, but faith in the method. Uh, enough at least to practice with the amount of rigor required to attain the results. You know, so while you don't have to believe anybody's scientific conclusions, you certainly have to believe in the scientific method, the methods of experimentation. You certainly have to invest a lot of time learning how to use the equipment. You're never going to be able to verify the findings of a scientific experiment if you don't know how to use the pipettes, the burettes, the computer software, or all the related technologies involved in practicing the method. So yoga is much the same way. It says, okay, here are some conclusions, here are some outcomes, but in order to do the experiment, you need to have a certain level of training, a certain level of proficiency with the mind. So, you know, where someone going to a university to study the physical sciences might get a training in mathematics, in computer software, in uh, instruments, a yogi, a spiritual seeker gets their grounding in meditation, in using the mind, in experimenting with various states of consciousness, known in this philosophy as bhavans or bhavas, you know, moods or feelings. And the yogi must be very objective and very precise in tracking these movements. So the thing about yoga, the thing about the Buddhist schools is that they're not faith-based. They don't want you to take anybody's word for it, but some level of faith is required in the technique and a great deal of practice is involved. You know, years and years of grounding in the system of meditation and eventually you'll see for yourself, you know. Advaita Vedanta is even more radical. It says, no, you don't even need faith in a method. You don't certainly don't need faith in any dogmatic concepts of God, and you also don't need any faith in a practice. All you need to have is faith in your own reasoning ability, your own ability to make sense of these philosophical arguments. You know, uh, so that's kind of the approach we want to take today. 
an approach uh, about causes and effects and reasoning. I'm going to present you with a few models today, and we'll see which ones best account for our phenomenal, phenomenal experience of life. You know, um, that's the conversation about reincarnation. So for a scientific theory to be good, it must have explanatory power, meaning it must be able to explain in the simplest way the most stuff. It wouldn't be very scientific to say, oh, lightning just happens. I don't know why it happens. Whoopsie. Um, oh, it's just instinct. The little chick chick is afraid of the eagle. Just instinct. See, that doesn't say very much. We need to offer a more robust theory to account why it is lightning appears in the sky. Why it is a young chick is frightened of the eagle even before it's taught to be by its mother. You know, why it is that you're called to certain things in your life even though you had no conditioning that would create such an outcome. And when we investigate these phenomena, we'll look at whether or not reincarnation as a theory has the explanatory, explanatory power to account for them. So that's our project today. Hopefully by the end of this lecture, um, you'll be able to understand what reincarnation is. Um, what is it that reincarnates? And finally, most importantly, what the Buddhist and Advaita Vedantist have to say about reincarnation. Hint, they don't believe you in re reincarnate. You know, the Buddhists believe in some sort of reincarnation of the mind and body, but not of you. And the Advaita Vedanta very radically denies it all as a Harry Potter fan fiction. Nothing's really happening. Nothing's ever happened. Nothing will happen. Nothing's really <laughs> happening. Um, and Fabricio made this point last week regarding reincarnation. Okay, so that's where we're going. But first, let's start at the beginning. And the beginning of any spiritual discussion is a discussion about suffering. All these philosophies that we talk about on Monday nights and Thursday nights, all the South Asian philosophies, even the materialist ones like Charvaka and Lokayatha, all of them are interested in making life more meaningful. Most of them are interested in ending the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. So most of them are about escaping samsara. Samsara is a technical word uh, to connote the changing or flux-like nature of existence. Uh, birth, death, rebirth. Uh, old age, sickness, pleasure turning to pain, pain turning to pleasure. It seems like a never-ending wheel of change. And it's almost a trope in South Asian philosophy to try to escape that wheel. But why? Why would a person want to escape the wheel of birth and death? What is it about samsara that is so repugnant for almost every South Asian school of philosophy? Even materialism, even Charvaka that denies the existence of anything outside of samsara, even they are interested in coming to terms with the suffering of samsara. So let's first understand what suffering is, you know, because all spiritual philosophies, their end goal is the removal of suffering. So the beginning of any discussion on spirituality must always be a definition of suffering. And for that, the Shakyamuni Buddha um, is the best best uh, South Asian system of thinking about suffering. You know, as you know, on the 26th of May, the full moon this month is uh, Buddha Purnima. It's the full moon of Buddha. Uh, some say it's the birth of the Buddha. Some say it's the day the Buddha became enlightened under the Bodhi tree. Um, but this month, you'll notice a lot of Buddhist-flavored arguments in our discussions together, just out of honor for this great master. You know, so we're going to look first now at the Buddha's conception of suffering. Basically, understand this. If you haven't yet had an insight about suffering, 
The Buddhists say you are not ripe to practice spirituality. You won't really be in it. You know, a lot of you maybe have an interest in these topics, like a curiosity, uh, a kind of passing fascination, if you will. But if that's all you're working with, you won't be able to generate the uh, will necessary to actually practice, to actually follow through with these schools of thought in order to reap their fruits, which is liberation, the end of suffering, the increase of meaning in life, you know, the discovery of truth, beauty, the reclamation of who you really are. All of that requires intense work. The Buddha would often talk of the buffalo, which you see in some South Asian countries and Southeast Asian countries, the way the buffalo ploddingly moves through the mud. The Buddha described the philosophical spiritual quest as that. It requires the tenacity and endurance of the bull to kind of plow through all the uh, resistance that you will meet. A lot of you have started meditating only to realize how woefully difficult it is. You know, for a month or so, the practice is killer. And then in month two, you're thrown off the wagon. All sorts of psychological complexes that you thought were buried deep in the subconscious all start to resurface. <laughs> it's a pretty freaky, freaky path. And the Buddha claims that to, to even be, um, to even, you know, start this path in any real way requires this primordial insight. And the insight is as follows. Life is suffering. Death is suffering, birth is suffering, rebirth is suffering, everything is suffering. Until you truly understand that, there cannot be genuine spirituality. So let's, let's try to unpack that. The Buddha described suffering in, in three stages. There are three kinds of suffering. Yes, to meditate is to face the fact that you are totally mad. In fact, I like what Swami Vivekananda said about the Buddha. Uh, Swami Vivekananda uh, the Indian saint who brought Vedanta to the U.S. and in the U.K., one of the first ambassadors of South Asian philosophy. Um, he said of the Buddha, he was the sanest man who ever lived. There were no cobwebs in that brain. <laughs> yes, and he often used to talk of the dizzying heights of Buddhist philosophy, the heights of which hopefully some of you will be introduced to today. So primarily I'll be pulling from a text known as the Dharma Chakra, Pravatarna Sutra, which basically means the setting in motion of the wheel of Dharma or the wheel of life or law. And it was the Buddha's first teaching. You know, it was his first uh, uh, offering and he taught it to just five people. You know, it was a very sweet kind of circle, him and his old buddies. He's just teaching them this Dharma Chakra. So one of the teachings of the Dharma Chakra is the threefold nature of suffering. So follow this closely. There are three unique ways that you can suffer in existence. And you must recognize this in order for a genuine spirituality. So the first kind of suffering we all know very well, it's the suffering of suffering. So this is like very literal suffering, you know, pain in the body, hunger in the body, uh, sickness in the body. For these kinds of suffering, there are very obvious cures. So the cures exist. If you're hungry, you can eat. If you're sick, there's medicine. Um, now, even in this sense, the Buddha points something out. The cures don't work indefinitely. You know, so if you're sick and you cure that sickness, give it a few more years and new sickness will come up. You know, and then you'll need to cure that. If you're hungry and you eat some food, give it a few hours and you'll be hungry again. So with the suffering of suffering, you can be engaged in this never-ending quest of trying to eliminate it, but you'll notice sooner or later that it's futile. You are always going to be uncomfortable in the body. 
notice that you can do yoga three hours a day and it will bring some level of physical exuberance. Uh, you'll start to feel pretty good in the body, but you'll be cold here. I'm always cold in California. You know, I'm from tropical country. It's cold here in California for me. Um, and, you know, you'll be hungry, you, you'll be sleepy and you'll be sick and there'll be political oppression and there'll be a president you don't like. And whatever it is, there's always going to be some level of suffering of suffering. Now, in the 18th century and, and many centuries before that, for a while, the Western. Yes, Shannon, I couldn't come to where you are. I don't think I have the uh, uh, fortitude for Canada. <laughs> yes, tropical monkey cannot. Um, <laughs> um Though Vivekananda would say, you know, cold, hunger, thirst, never mind any of that. <laughs> anyway, the Buddha points out suffering of suffering is always going to be, to a large extent, um, unsolvable. You know, you can try as hard as you want, but every time you whack a mole, another one appears. You've played that game in the arcade. That's whack-a-mole. Uh, the Buddha describes suffering of suffering in those terms. So uh, the colonial quest that the West embarked upon for centuries was a quest to, at its best, bring civilization and health and hygiene and, and goodness to the world. Um, and that quote, you know, the road to hell is paved in good intentions. You can see in the colonial history of the world how those good intentions often created very difficult systems of oppression. And to solve one problem was to create a whole host of other problems, you know, to divert a river in order to uh, feed a village. Suddenly the other river bread dried up and that village starved. So trying to solve the suffering of suffering is very complex at best. Um, and the Buddha says it cannot be done. But let's assume, for the sake of argument, you managed to do it. So let's assume you've managed to minimize or maybe eliminate all the suffering of sufferings that exist in the world. There's no more sickness, as if. No more old age, as if. Um, no more uh, political oppression, you know. And you're comfortable all the time. The air conditioning is just right. So let's assume that. The second flavor of suffering is subtler, and the Buddha calls this the suffering of change. So even in this world, absent uh, with suffering of suffering, you will still suffer change, meaning the things that you thought would bring you meaning stop giving you that meaning after a while. The thing changes and you change. You enter a relationship and it's awesome for three months, they change or you change, and then it stops being awesome. You know, so the suffering of change is about how even in a world without suffering of suffering, that you will still suffer the changing nature of things. Now, if you look very closely, this was the Buddha's first observation. Everything changes. Anityam manityam sarva manityam. Everything is always in a state of perpetual change. Something that quantum mechanics is more and more identifying as as true. So your body, which you take to be relatively stable, not only does it come into existence and leave existence, but during existence, it changes. Not only does it change from the baby body to the adolescent body, to the adult body, to the old age body. You've, you've heard the riddle. What is it that walks on four legs, then two legs, then three legs? In Oedipus Rex, the Sphinx asks Oedipus this, and the answer is man. He crawls as a baby, she walks as an adult and she's got a walking stick. Now the idea, not only does the body change uh, in these stages of life, it also changes moment to moment on a cellular level, you know? So the body, what you take to be this relatively stable thing is a flux of change. 
the mind changes even more dramatically. One moment you feel a certain way, and next moment there's a different mood. You know, so the body and mind are always changing. And because of that, nothing can bring you lasting satisfaction. But let's assume somehow you manage to stop change. Like things aren't changing as if, but let's just assume that you've managed to do that. The third flavor of suffering that the Buddha points out, it's very subtle. It's called the suffering of anatma, the suffering of no self. And this is the idea that no matter what, you will always feel kind of inauthentic insofar as you take yourself to be the body and the mind. Yes, as, as, as uh, Mick Jagger famously sings, you can't get no satisfaction very prophetic line. And that was the Buddha's claim too. You're just never going to feel at home because if you take the mind and body to be real, to be a thing, you'll, you'll be frustrated. It's like trying to grasp at a river. It's always changing. The water's always flowing. The sands of time are, are rushing in between uh, each finger and you can never quite grasp it. And all this clinging, all this trying to grasp is responsible for the great restlessness and dukkha of life. The dukkha, the Buddha called, uh, described it as suffering. So unless you've had this insight, unless you truly believe in every fiber of your being that life is suffering, it's very difficult to make meaningful strides in, in spiritual life. You know, because you're always going to find a way to reconcile spirituality with all the other material cravings, like for sexual partners, for power, for pleasure, and you'll continue to be caught in these cycles of hankering after pleasure, identification with the body and the mind. So the Buddha's quest began with an inquiry into suffering. And most importantly, it began with an inquiry into how to solve that. How do we escape the problem of suffering? How do we deal with this? And if the Buddha just pointed out suffering and left it at that, it would be a very pessimistic philosophy. It'd be like a, quite the party pooper. You know, imagine you're, you're drinking your beer, watching sports, and you're just kind of not thinking about anything. And the Buddha comes and sits down next to you in the couch. And he's like, brah, birth is suffering. Life is suffering. Death is suffering. And you're like, dude, I'm trying to watch the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the Buddha wanted to point out that you live in this bubble. You try to not look at old age. For some reason, you don't think it will happen to you. You know, you're immortal after all. You'll always be young, you know. Uh, you try not to look at sickness. And unless there's COVID or some kind of pandemic, most of the time we don't believe sickness is a thing, you know. Um, and finally, death. Last week, we talked a lot about the cultural escapist tendencies we have. You know, our culture is designed to avoid darkness, to avoid death, to make a taboo out of any conversation involving the very real and very inevitable end of the body. So as long as sickness, old age, and death exist, and, and as long as you kind of shelter yourself away from that, figures like the Buddha are needed to point out the inevitability of sickness, death, and old age, you know, and to get you started on the quest of solving that as soon as possible. Think of it now. Figure it out now. Uh, there's even a Greek statement. I think uh, Austin shared a video the other day. Um, and it was that Greek uh, sentiment. Die before you die so that when you die, you don't have to die. I forgot the Greek of it. Uh, but it's a very nice phrase of, of get started on the problem of death, old age, sickness. Um, that's the quest of the Buddha. And it should be the quest of any sincere spiritual seeker. You don't have to phrase it like that. You can phrase it maybe a more palatable way of just a sense deep in you that there is something more to life than this. 
something more than meets the eye. There is some meaning in life that is eluding us. So we start to seek this. We become very interested in finding the meaning, finding the solutions to these very real problems. So suffering eventually prepares the way for a genuine search of spirituality. Once you start this search, there are three general paths you can take, um, and each one kind, kind of leads to the other. You know, we talked a little bit about these three paths on Thursday. But broadly speaking, the three paths are as follows. The first, first is the path of faith. So you accept on faith that there is a meaning. Although you yourself aren't quite sure what it is, you believe the spiritual leaders of your tribe and of your village, of your community, that there is a God. That somewhere out there, there is a being, and that being is the cause of all things. So you see, even in the path of faith, there is a scientific attempt, the attempt to discover the underlying cause of all things, out of the intuition that all things have a cause. You know, that's the fundamental intuition that all science, all philosophy, and all spirituality seeks to address. The underlying assumption that there is a cause, you know. So in the faith-based religions or systems, the cause is God. And whatever form that God takes, the formlessness of Yahweh or, or Allah or, or the Father or the form of Krishna, the uh, blue boy dancing along the banks of the Yamuna, whatever form that God takes, that God is seen as outside of time, outside of space and the reason for time, space and suffering. So suffering is caused by God, so to speak, or at least it's tolerated by God. And it's necessary for you, the individual, to more fully appreciate God. So on, on one level, the suffering is there to punish you every time you stray from proper worship. And that's the case with much of the Old Testament. In another case, suffering is there to test you, uh, like in the case of Job, what have you. Uh, but you kind of assuage yourself with this idea that, that there is a God. And this is a good path. For many people, it's, it's a sufficient path. One point to make here though, these faith-based religions often have as their founder a mystic who didn't have to believe in things on faith. Uh, the mystic, the founder of each of these schools, had very direct, first-hand, mystical experiences that prompted them to create their religions. You know, so in the case of the Prophet Muhammad, he actually saw the angel Jibril. You know, he was in a cave um, and he met the archangel Gabriel or Jibril or Gabriel, and he was taught the philosophies that he would later codify as Islam. Um, you know, uh, Moses went up to the mountain and there he heard the voice of God and he spoke to a burning bush. And what did the burning bush say? Very profound non-dual statement, right? In Sanskrit, the statement was aham idam aham or aham brahmasmi, which means I am, full stop, or I am, that I amness, I am awareness. So, um, for Moses, for Abraham, who regularly, he, uh, Abraham had uh, angels on speed dial. You know, Abraham was regularly speaking to angels. Moses was speaking to angels. Uh, uh, the prophet Muhammad was was speaking to angels. Um, and even you know, Jesus, his parents, Mary and Joseph, met some angels. And Jesus himself, you know, he also had a hotline to God. He was the son, after all, and not different from God. So. In the South Asian spiritual traditions, you have a lot of faith-based schools, and often they start uh, with a mystic, like Chaitanya Prabhu, for instance, who saw Krishna in the forest and later started the Bhakti movement or the Hare Krishna movement. Um, now, faith-based approaches, when practiced sincerely, often turn to mysticism. 
So if you really believe in Jesus Christ, if you really believe in Krishna and you devote every day to prayer, to worship, to living by the ideals of that faith, sooner or later, you will have a mystical experience. You will meet your gods, so to speak. For instance, uh, Teresa of Avila. You know, Teresa was a saint in the Christian tradition, and she was very devoted to Jesus. And in her writings, she tells this story. One day she's, she's dreaming, and a man appears to her. And she describes the man in a very European fashion. That's interesting to know. Jesus would have appeared like a swarthy, you know, brown-skinned Mediterranean man. But she saw a very tall, aquiline figure. And the man appeared to her in her dream. And she asks, the man asks her, who are you? And she replies, I am Theresa of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? I am Theresa of Jesus. I've devoted myself to Jesus. And then she goes, who are you, mister? She was quite a spunky dame. And uh, this figure replies to her beautifully, I am Jesus of Theresa. Isn't that beautiful? Um, he is the Jesus of Theresa. He is devoted to her as she is devoted to him. Uh, you will eventually see Krishna. You will eventually see Jesus. And then you become a mystic. So the path of faith does take you to very genuine mystical experiences. Vivekananda would say, if there is a God, I must see him. You know, and that's the correct attitude to take with a faith-based religion. You practice so that eventually you'll have uh, more and more intimate experiences that you can verify firsthand in your own prayer, in your own meditation, you know. Now there's another path, and this is the path of yoga and Buddhism. We call this the mystic's way. So the faith-based traditions like Vaishnavism, for instance, Vaishnava um, faith believes in God and asks you to just uh, believe it on faith. And that will help you have your own experiences sooner or later. But the experiences aren't as important as the faith. You know. Now, a faith-based tradition is uh, uh, juxtaposed by a mystic tradition. These are traditions like yoga and Buddhism that stress not taking things on faith, stress avoiding dogma, and emphasize methods. So in this school, you do need to have faith, but in the method. And then you practice the method and you have a first-hand experience. The third path is the path of the philosopher, uh, what we call Jnana Yoga or Advaita Vedanta. Now, Jnana Yoga kind of to a degree dismisses the mysticism of yoga, um, and it also dismisses the faith-based claims of Vaishnavism. It prefers instead rigorous philosophical inquiry into causes and effects um, so that you can reason it out for yourself, you know. So I'd like to take that path today. Certainly, you can take reincarnation on faith. Most South Asian schools of philosophy ask you to do so. i rather you didn't do that. I'm an Advaitin, and we kind of uh, uh, are trained against taking things on faith. So i rather you don't take reincarnation on faith, but by all means, if you must, go ahead. Um, it's stressed in many schools of South Asian philosophy on faith. Now, you can also discover it via the mystic's path. So if you meditate deeply enough, you will, and I can guarantee this to you, have first-hand experiences of your past lives. You will see a broader vista of causality, and you will see how before this body, there were other bodies. And after this body, there will also be other bodies. 
you know. So through mystic experience, you can have this insight. Randy and I were talking about chakras the other day via text, and we talked about how it's very difficult to approach chakras philosophically, because by very nature, a chakra is a mystical experience, and chakras are spoken about in the mystical branches of the tantric philosophy. Chakras can only be experienced. They cannot really be philosophized about, or even read about, or even contemplated on. You know, they must be experienced directly through meditation. So yes, you can experience reincarnation through meditation. But today, um, let's look at it as philosophers. Let's inquire into reincarnation on philosophical grounds, on, on the grounds of cause and effect, and by looking at some data. Okay, so let's now start by observing the data. You know, what's funny, there are some schools of philosophy that deny reincarnation, but I don't really know why. Uh, Swami Sarva Priyananda the other day was saying, I'm really perplexed by the uh, Christian and Muslim rejection of reincarnation, because at, at the core, that, those philosophies must accept that something exists outside of the body. They call it a soul, you know, a nafsu, some, like some, some being apart from the body that after the body can go to heaven. If it is true that there is something in you that lives beyond the body and lives after the body, why is it also the case that it couldn't have been in a body before or it couldn't go into a body later? You know, so the rejection of reincarnation by religious schools like Christianity, Islam, and Judaism is a little bit weird on logical grounds, you know? Um, the rejection of reincarnation by materialist is understandable. You know, a materialist thinks the body creates the brain and the brain creates consciousness. So the end of the body is the end of the brain and therefore the end of consciousness. What, can, what then can reincarnate? Obviously, the body doesn't live forever. We can watch it burn in the fire along the banks of the Ganga. We can open the casket and look at it and it's there. You know, Joe didn't go anywhere. He's there. <laughs> Skeleton Joe. Um, and it's funny a materialist position is understandable, but a spiritualist position rejecting reincarnation is a bit weird. You know, let's just admit that. Um, and in the Bible, you hear things like Jesus saying, I am Eli, who was, um, you know, Elijah before him and stuff, stuff like that. Anyway, let's engage with the materialist. So for today, let's pretend we're having a dialogue with the materialist, a materialist who doesn't believe in the soul or the soul's existence beyond the body, a materialist who takes matter to be the ontological primitive and the soul or consciousness to be an emergent property of matter that is like accidental. Um, and let's also admit that Western material science is only now beginning to answer the question, matter um, to be what is consciousness? and soul or consciousness. I like the, the lag so we can listen to what ridiculous statement I just made. You know, <laughs> what is this drunken monkey talking about now? Anyway, so let's pretend we're talking to a materialist. So we must engage on three levels. First, is matter prior to awareness? Secondly, is the death of matter also the corresponding death of awareness? And thirdly, what data... Um, do we have and what can we reason from that data? 
Yes. So let's start. The first question, does matter come before awareness? We took this question up two classes ago and we investigated very deeply two problems with the philosophy known as materialism. So if you think matter is the ontological primitive, meaning if you think this world is made of matter and awareness is an accidental emergence of matter, you have to deal with two very difficult problems, which in philosophy we call one, the hard problem of matter and two, the hard problem of consciousness. Uh, these are two very good Googles. It's, there's, a, there's a wealth of literature around these two problems, um, trying to solve them through neuroscience and quantum mechanics. It's a very good kind of inquiry. But very basically, and, and, and to generalize, the hard problem of matter says this. First of all, you don't know what matter is. You can never really tell what matter is. You don't know what electricity is, what gravity is. You only know what it does, you know? Um, you can only study its effects. You cannot study its nature. Secondly, the more you look for it, the more it runs away from you. So what you previously thought was a solid atom, when you look closely, you find that it's mostly, mostly empty space. What you thought was the nucleus in the center is also mostly empty space. So the more you chase matter, the more empty it looks. You know, and so recent discoveries in quantum mechanics like string theory and the muons and quarks and these kinds of discoveries echo very eerily the statement of the Upanishadic philosophers in 3800 BC India and also the statements of the Shakyamuni Buddha and all the Buddhist scholars after him who claimed categorically all matter is empty. All things are emptiness. Shunyam, shunyam, sarvam, shunyam. Everything is void, void. All is void, you know? Um, now, 110 years ago, Einstein gives us E equals MC square, which eerily echoes the statement that the Sankhyan philosophies were making uh, in 600 BCE, statements like, um, all of nature is energy. It's a flux of moving prana. All that exists is prana, energy, life force, in different degrees of vibration. You know, so we're getting some echo in quantum mechanics. Uh, and most importantly, the texts of Tantra weren't even intelligible to many of the translators before the quantum mechanics language of vibratory universe. You know, so before we started to use terms like vibration and the vibratory universe, um, Tantra was unintelligible because it used that language. Shakti is pure vibration vibrating at different levels. It's difference in degree, not in kind, that uh, accounts for differences in bodies. And what you call gravity is just one form of energy, which in other places is electricity and electromagnetism, all of that. Um, so you are hearing some echoes in quantum mechanics and in modern scientific inquiry, um, but most importantly, most importantly, the more you look for matter, the more it disappears. So that's the first problem, the hard problem of matter. The second problem is the hard problem of consciousness. So even if you accept matter is real, um, you cannot account for how matter produces consciousness. At best, neuroscience can give us synaptic firing. So there's some electrical movement in the brain, but it's impossible to show how that electrical movement equals this world, you know? Uh, try as they might, these devices cannot identify a thought, cannot identify an emotion. You're never able to pin those things down through the instruments we have today. Um, and Advaita Vedanta and many schools of South Asian philosophy says you never can. You know, these 
qualities belong to the sukshma sharira or subtle body, which is different from the stula sharira or physical body. An inquiry into the physical universe will never yield data about the subtle universe, which is of a categorically different substance. So the ultimate question is this. 96% of the universe is made of dark matter or dark energy, meaning it's unknowable. Of the 4% that is knowable, 98 or 99 point, sorry, 99.8 or 99.9% of that is invisible interstellar dust. Um, and of the 0.2% that is visible, some trillions of galaxies, it's kind of big. Don't, don't worry, the 0.2% we're talking about is, is still pretty big. But of that visible atomic universe, it's looking like most of the uh, atoms are empty space anyway. So that is the problem with expecting matter to come before awareness. It's called the hard problem of matter or the hard problem of consciousness. It gets solved when you invert the picture, when you say awareness comes first, out of awareness emerges the body, out of the, sorry, out of the awareness emerges the mind, out of the mind emerges the body, and from the body emerges this uh, perceptual field of experience we call the world, Jagrat, the world. And last week, we gave you an argument to prove that. And not just say it on, not take it on faith, but to show it, to really show the truth of this statement, awareness comes first. We won't do that argument today. Let's take the next question then. Okay, if awareness comes first, what about death? Now, if you expect the body to produce awareness, then death is a very real problem for you. You know, the end of the body means the end of you. But if you expect awareness to come first, then the death of the body doesn't necessarily mean the death of you. Let's review an argument. This argument alone should be enough uh, to, to free you of the fear of death. It's very ambitious, but let's try. Notice, right now, sensations arise and disappear. Notice you might be able to smell some incense or, you know, if you have some tea, you can take a little sip of your tea. And you'll notice three things occurring. First, a sensation arises. Then, it maintains for a little while. And thirdly, it goes away. When the sensation ended, your mind didn't end. So your ability to perceive that sense event persisted beyond the ending of that particular sense event. So far, so good, right? That seems obvious. Once that sense event ended, a new sense event arose. And then that one ended, and you were still around for the next one. That seems obvious, no? Okay, let's take it one step further. What is a body? I mean, beyond just the concept, I have a body, your bodies are a thing, what is a body in terms of your experience? Is it really anything more than momentary, moment-by-moment moment sense events. So is a body really anything more than a taste of tea, than a feeling of pain in the hip, a stretch in the hamstring when I do my 17th long uttanasana in the class we had earlier, you know? Um, isn't that all the body is? Moment-to-moment -moment sense perceptions? Some of you have practiced Hatha Yoga. Before your first Hatha Yoga class, you didn't even know you had hamstrings, right? You didn't feel them. And then after you did three Surya Namaskar B series at the Ashtanga studio, you came home and you were like, oh my God, what is that feeling? I didn't know I had muscles over there, <laughs> you know? Um, suddenly the body 
seemed to become more uh, more dimensions were added to it. So let's be clear, the body as you experience it is nothing more than moment to moment sensation. If you know sensations arise and disappear, you can conclude from that that the body arises and disappears. After all, isn't it just a sensation? And secondly, if you know that the mind persists beyond the body, uh, sorry, beyond all sensation, can't you also conclude that the mind will persist beyond the sensation of the body? When all sensation ends, you're still around to experience the next one. So that's the first idea for you today with regards to reincarnation. So philosophically speaking, if we can attribute sensation to the body, and if we can attribute the mind's propensity to exist beyond the termination of a sensation, we can at least hint at the possibility of your mind going on beyond the death of the body. Okay, now I'm going to give you an even more complicated picture of that um, to describe reincarnation. So building off of this, and we'll close with this idea, building off of this, you have two models, one from yoga and one from Buddhism to explain reincarnation. The first from yoga I hinted at last week. Um, the yoga explanation is this. You have five sheaths that make up your experience of life, five bodies, so to speak. The first is the Annamaya Kosha, which means physical food body. Literally, it translates to the food illusory sheath. <laughs> so your uh, sheath, your glove, if you will, the first one is body. It's made of food. Uh, you, it's made of atoms, so to speak. Um, and this is what science can investigate. You know, science can study, as Eddie said, the 30 trillion human cells, you know. Yes, I like that quote very much by Rob Knight. Thank you, Eddie. Um, yeah, so you'll see the body can be studied, but you're not just the Anomaya Kosha, despite the best attempts of material science to prove reductively that you are just the body, you feel yourself to be more than that. So beyond the Anomaya Kosha, the yogis say, there is the uh, Pranomaya Kosha, or your energy body. This is the realm of your moods and your vitality. Then beyond that is the Mannomaya Kosha, the realm of your organs of perception. The mind is the assimilating place of various perception experiences. Then you have the Vijnanamaya Kosha, which is the intellect. It's the intellect body that makes sense of the data collected by the mind body. Deeper than that, you have the causal body, which I don't really want to get into. Um, it's the body you're in when you're sleeping. It's very complex, and most of us don't really experience that so intimately, so we won't talk about it. But beyond all of that is you. So you are, in actuality, Purusha, or that's the term that Sankhya likes to use, Purusha, spirit, or in other schools of Indian philosophy, Atma, self, capital S. That's what you really are. You aren't the body, physical body, you aren't the energy body, you aren't the mind, nor are you even the intellect. You are the one encased by all of those sheets. And once you start to go on this journey, you peel back each layer of the Russian Matryoshka doll and you find the real you, you know? So that you 
can never die because it's beyond nature. It's beyond the field of flux. It's not in nature. It's not in time. It's not in space. So it's eternal in a sense and imperishable in another sense. You know, that's, that's the claim of yoga. This comes from the Taittiriya Upanishad. And of course, we say, don't take our word for it. Practice. Practice and dis- discover all these layers for yourself. Now, the yogi says this. Every action you do in your life, you go around the world and you do stuff, uh, you think thoughts. And the thoughts you think give rise to certain actions. You know, so if you're thinking yoga thoughts, sooner or later, you're going to start practicing hatha yoga uh, or, or, or pranayama or something, right? The thoughts produce the action. The more you do the action, the more you're going to have those thoughts. Ryan will probably testify the moment we started doing some asana together, you probably started thinking about yoga a lot more, right? And it seems to be the case that thoughts produce actions and actions reify or reinforce those thoughts. Now, the more you think thoughts, you can experience this for yourself. What first started as a thought becomes subtler and subtler until it turns into a habit. Habits seem to come from nowhere. They seem to emanate or bubble up from deep beneath the surface of your consciousness and inform your thoughts and actions. Do you notice this? That you kind of go about the world and you have certain predispositions, certain proclivities, certain, thank you, Ryan, certain inclinations, if you will, and they seem to be coming from some mysterious place. But you also know you can reprogram them, right? So you can retrain yourself where before you were reacting, Now, your reactions change, you know, because you did some meditation or pranayama. So you know how habits are formed because you can implant new ones. Okay, watch this closely. If you study the science of habits, you know that repeated thoughts and repeated actions eventually become these mysterious uh, self-generating things we call habits. They become what in yoga we call a samskara. So a samskara means an impression in the energy body. So the pranamaya kosha kind of stores these impressions um, and they give rise to thoughts and actions. The more you reinforce a samskara, the deeper the groove becomes, so to speak. By the way, do you notice that this kind of language is being echoed in neuroscience with like neuroplasticity and all of that? forming grooves in the mind. It's the same language. So if you keep doing something, if you keep thinking about something, if you keep doing an activity or a practice, sooner or later that samskara will become deeper and deeper and deeper until it implants itself in your causal body. So the yogis say you have this body, it's called the Ananda Mayakosha, and it's kind of like a database. It stores all the samskaras that you built up in this life. When the physical body dies, and indeed it will, you all see that happen. Uh, in some cases, I, you know, I've held the, the ashes of, of, my, uh, of the ones who have been departed. Um, and you can see, it's like, oh, what was once my grandfather is now this ash. <laughs> it's a very vivid uh, reminder that the physical body dies. But what happens to those seeds, those habits, those samskaras? They give rise to new bodies along the lines of the samskaras encoded into them. So the idea is that the body you have now, meaning your health, when you will have certain diseases, how bright you are, how good your memory is, um, I don't know, how, what, what you feel about the world, what music you like, down to the very finest parts of your personality, all of those are an expression of previous samskaras. All the new samskaras you're building today, 
you're building one right now. As we have this conversation, as you think these thoughts, these samskaras will give rise in a new incarnation to certain propensities, proclivities, and predispositions. Let me motivate why this is true. When you learn something in this class, or in fact anywhere else, notice that it never feels like you're learning something new. The feeling is almost always like you're recollecting or remembering something that you always knew, except now you finally heard it articulated um, in this life for the first time. You know, notice that there is a feeling of coming home to these teachings, a feeling of kind of uh, uh, remembering knowledge. Uh, and I will answer a lot of questions later, by the way. So keep them in the chat. I'll come to them. Uh, I just want to close out this lecture. We are two minutes over. So I want to close out this lecture with this final thought. This samskara building is what gives rise to future bodies and the sicknesses that you have, the teachers that you meet, the people that you meet, um, the rewards that come to you, your advantages, your disadvantages, all of this was self-caused. Why you were born to a certain racial group, why you were born to a certain physical uh, capacity and not some other capacity, all of that was self-caused. It was all a result of previous karma. This is, I think, the takeaway from this yogic message. The Buddha and the yogis both stressed, you need to take responsibility for your life. You need to stop attributing the things that happen to you as some external force of oppression. Oh no, you know, there's oppression in the world and I'm a victim. The Buddha and, and the yogic philosophers at first said, enough of that. Everything you suffer in this life, you brought on to yourself. Sounds like victim blaming, but in fact, it's an empowering statement that says, no, just like you brought these things onto yourself, so too can you be the cause of good effects, you know. Um, so that's one of the teachings from yoga. Now let's look at the Buddhist teachings. Very briefly, um, the Buddhists have a very, very complex system. It's also from the Dharma Chakra Pravatarna Sutra, and we will discuss it in depth two classes from now. But for now, suffice to say, the Buddhists have a 12-step method. It's not 12-step program, 12-step method. They say, first, there is avidya. Avidya means ignorance. Ignorance of what? Ignorance of your true nature. Ignorance of... Uh, assuming that you are this body and mind. As long as you have ignorance, you will create karmas. Karmas are anything, any action that you take selfishly, any action you take as a body and mind. Even if it appears on the surface as charity or selflessness, as long as you're doing it um, with the strong sense of me and them, I'm giving charity to somebody, I'm taking care of my loved ones. As long as there's a me, me, me narrative there, um, it still produces a karma. So avidya of your true nature, for the Buddhist it means the absence of a true self. Avidya of that, ignorance of that, gives you karma. Karma gives you something called vijnana, which basically means consciousness, kind of a loaded term. But from that, you get, um, from vijnana, you get nama rupa. So this vijnana, because of avidya and because of karma in the past, feels compelled to take on a body. Nama rupa is, is what the Buddhists call form. Rupa skanda, the form. And so karmas or samskaras propel you into a new body, right? So after that, you get something that's uh, it's called senses. 
Um, and those senses give you what in the Buddhist philosophy is called sparsha, contact with the objects of senses. That gives you vedana, which means experience, because there are two kinds of experiences, pleasurable and, and, and displeasurable, if you will. That gives you trishna, thirst for the pleasurable and also aversion for the displeasurable. Then you get upadana, which is grasping. From upadana, you get um, bhava, the desire to be born again, because ultimately those desires aren't met by the end of your life. And from that, you get jati, rebirth, and from that, you get old age and sickness. So it's a wheel, you know, but basically the Buddhists are giving you a 12-step wheel describing very clearly why it is that the body and mind keep reincarnating. So according to the yogi, you reincarnate because you aren't the body, you are a subtle body. And so that subtle body continues to reincarnate. According to the Buddhist and the Advaita Vedantist, it's not you that reincarnates. You were never born, you will never die because you are outside of nature. The yogis also say this, your purusha, your atma, yourself, never was in time, never will be in time, and is as such not bound by the laws of decay. Uh, they don't, th these, these purushas for the yogis, this one atma for the, 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 uh, um, the Advaita Vedantists and the lack of a self, the void or anatma of the Buddhist, all of this is not what reincarnates. What reincarnates is your relative jiva or personality which is expressed by your energy body by your samskars so the buddhists admit this they give you a 12-step wheel showing how your jiva or individual self continues to reincarnate the buddhist term for this is panchaskanda which it basically means the five aggregates or the five parts of your mind um, and we'll unpack that more in the buddhism lecture but for now, the Buddhist, it's enough to understand that the Buddhist believe that this continues. The panchaskanda, the body and mind, continues over and over and over again. But that has nothing to do with you. It only has something to do with you insofar as you consider yourself to be the body and mind. And that's the mistake. That's what the Buddha wants to show you uh, that you're wrong. You're not the body and mind. There is no self in any of the five skandhas. It's not in the body. It's, it's not in... Uh, your samskaras, it's not in your consciousness, it's not in your, um, a, a bunch of different things. But ideally, you realize this, and that's how you escape the wheel of birth, birth and death. So the body and mind might go on, but you don't go with it. Somebody even asked the Buddha, what happens after you die? Do you still reincarnate? The Buddha said, if you blow out a flame, do you ask the question, where did the flame go? To the north? To the south? To the east? To the west? No. It's burnt out. So the Theravadin or Hinayana Buddhist might suggest that once you become enlightened, once you achieve nirvana, the body and mind stop reincarnating. There's no more engine to power the motor, so the wheel stops. You know, what is it? Uh, in Game of Thrones, Daenerys Targaryen wanted to break the wheel. The Buddha gives us this method for doing just that. Uh, nirvana equals cessation of samsara. That's a Theravadin or Orthodox Buddhist. Mahayana or Northern Buddhists say, no, actually that's not what happens. Once you come out of the wheel of birth and death, the body and mind do continue. And in fact, they continue to just live out what samskaras they have left. And it's not necessary that they get shed away. They can be a tool for the, the, the enlightened being to continue to teach, to be in the world, to help other people be free of the world. 
And then we get our Bodhisattva vow, Nagarjuna, stuff we've talked about before. Okay, so let's close here. According to Buddhism and Advaita Vedanta, although they agree that on a relative level, reincarnation happens, you don't reincarnate. Yet, having said that, it's valuable to you to consider the model of reincarnation, one, because it frees you from a victim narrative. It shows you that everything that happened to you and is happening to you and will happen to you is, to a degree, self-caused. And that should give you the power, that empowering feeling to change what will happen to you in the future. BKS Iyengar says, yoga is the practice of equipping you to endure that which cannot be cured and to cure that which does not need to be endured. So it's all about stopping new karma and just bearing with the karma that you've already accrued, you know? So that's the first reason why reincarnation is a good philosophy. Vivekananda said, every breeze that touches the sinner's face and every disturbing thought that interrupts the arhat's meditation all was caused by a previous action. Uh, you know, and that's a very dramatic statement, but every little thing is caused by some previous action. Now, that's the first reason for reincarnation. The second reason is to give you this feeling of hope. Arjuna asked Krishna, what happens when I die? If I'm practicing yoga, what happens if my practice gets interrupted by death? Krishna says, chill out, bro. Nothing is lost. Should the body end, your practice carries over. You will find a new instrument capable of, or more better suited to spiritual practice. So the more you practice, the more likely your next incar incarnation will feature a healthy body to well-to-do parents, so you'll not have to deal with financial struggle, um, probably an attractive body too, uh, because that's one of the consequences of spiritual practice is fragrance and, and, and charisma. And thirdly, a bright mind, ability to memorize, ability to study, to, to be very sophisticated in your intellect. So Krishna affirms Arjuna in that. Don't worry, if you die, Reincarnation as a theory means you carry forward. And the third reason you should accept the incarnation theory or reincarnation theory is because of its explanatory power. So we have cases like Dorothy Edie, who fell down the stairs at age three. Um, and from that moment, and she was born in early 20th century Victorian England, from that moment, she was obsessed with Egypt. She kept having memories of Egypt. When she went to the British National Museum, she kissed the feet of the statues and cried with joy, I'm home, I'm home. She looked at the pictures and she's like, where's the trees, where's the grass? And then she eventually moved to Egypt, whereupon she was given a new name, Om Seti. So there's a documentary out uh, on her actually, it's very great. Um, and Om Seti managed to help archeologists discover parts of the temple that even the archaeologist couldn't find. You know, she was able to remember past life memories as a priestess in the temple of Abydos, a priestess of, uh, in, in the reign of Ramses I. So we have instances of these where people have very strong past life memories, memories from a previous life, a previous body in a different historical epoch. And those memories are verified in the case of Dorothy Edie by her weird ability to just discover where parts of the temple were, you know? So you have cases like that. You have this feeling of remembering that characterizes learning. If you check out Socrates' Mino, that text demonstrates reincarnation or Phaedro 
uh, Socrates also makes many arguments for reincarnation. If you investigate instinct, why is it that certain animals have instincts even though they weren't formally taught by their parents. So if you take the chick away from its mother very early on in its life before it has a chance to be socialized into the chick world or the chicken world, it still acts like a chick or a chicken. It fears the eagle in the sky. Why is that the case? This wasn't a learned behavior. Um, and in Western material science, we say instinct. But that word doesn't describe it. It doesn't explain it. Finally, the only response to reincarnation a Western materialist might propose is memory. You don't remember your past life. But if memory was a prerequisite for existence, is it right to say that all those times that you don't remember in your babyhood, you didn't exist? Certainly that would be absurd. Uh, there are many times in your life that are lost to you in terms of memory, but you don't think that because they are no longer there in memory, they were never there in existence. So memory is not a prerequisite for past lives. And you can yourself right now experience your past lives. How? By being here. You know, the very fact that you're in this discussion, interested by these topics, means that this is not your first pass that you've been here before, that you've interacted with these ideas before, and you continue in this life the work that you started in previous lives. So let's close there. You are the author of your own actions. You are empowered to be the causes of every future effects. You can escape the wheel of birth and death because you were never in it to begin with. And thirdly, this theory should give you a great sense that your work doesn't end with the end of the body. It carries forward. Okay, and so affirmed, let us close with our final OM, and then we'll open the floor for questions. All right. Shanti Hari Om Tat Sat